Well, we're going to open up your Bibles to Isaiah 41, and Scratch is getting, uh, making some copies, or whoever's making copies. I want us to read this chapter, the whole chapter, and then um, we're going to look at it. And the way that we're going to look at it tonight is, um, let, me, let me kind of explain what we're going to see here. This is, this is kind of a trial scene, okay? It's a picture of, of, of God calling the nations um, to judgment. And you see, we'll see in verses 1 through 7, sort of the, the beginning of the trial. And in verses 21 through 29, we see the verdict that's pronounced. And in the middle of it, we see God's exhortation and His encouragement um, of His people. Okay? So keep that in mind as we're reading it. That's how we're going to approach it um, when we, when we you know, go through it. But let's read this all together. Isaiah writes these words, but they're really the words of the living God. He says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails, so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all, for I... The Lord your God hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst... I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together. 
that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it. None who proclaimed. None who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Let's pray together. Father, it is true that all the gods of the nations and all the idols made by human hands are worthless and empty because they are no gods. You alone are God. You alone are the great I Am. You alone are the self-existent One. You depend on nothing and no one. You need nothing from anyone. You are fully and completely God above all. And we bless your holy name. And Lord, we are so incredibly thankful to be numbered among your remnant, to be numbered among those to whom you show grace, to be numbered among those whom you have freed from the foolishness of idolatry, and brought into the true worship of the living God. And Lord, as we look at this text tonight, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us with the knowledge that even as we live in this, you know, this present day Babylon, that Lord, you will not leave us and you will not forsake us. That your promises to us are sure because you are sure. Your word is truth. And so thank you that that's true. I pray just, Lord God, help us to understand this text. Make it resonate in our hearts. Make us attentive as we hear it. And Lord God, give me the grace by your spirit to teach these words effectively and faithfully. And um, Lord, in a way that brings glory and honor to your holy and blessed name. So bless this time that we're in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the deal. I'm really anxious to get into and eager to get into the back into the prophecy of Isaiah tonight um, and get into verse 40 or chapter 41. But before we do that, it's been a few weeks, right? So I want to kind of just take a moment to remind ourselves of where we are in this book, because it's important that we understand sort of the, the, you know, the, the context in which we're in as we're reading Isaiah 41. I want you to remember that 
Back in chapter 40, that marked a a distinct shift, right, in the book of Isaiah. You'll remember that chapters 1 through 39 focused on the past and the, the present events that were going on in the life of Judah that were contemporaneous with the life of Isaiah, right? And the main focus was on God's judgment. It was on his, his discipline of Judah and on, on her political leaders for their relentless idolatry, for their consequent rebellion and wickedness, the way that they gave lip service to God, right? But their hearts were far from him, right? And you remember, we, we, we dealt with the, the reality that Judah was facing trouble with Syria and with the ten northern tribes of Israel, right? But their main crisis, really, was in the, was, was the nation of Assyria, right? That was the up-and-coming, conquering nation of the day. And you remember, Assyria laid waste to the Judean countryside. They were threatening a siege of Jerusalem, right? But God intervened, and He brought deliverance to the nation in one miraculous night when an angel of the Lord, you know, slaughtered 185,000 of the Assyrian troops, right? One night, right? And while there's some bright spots in, in these first 39 chapters, in general, it was dominated by a strong tone of warning, right? And, and judgment, a record of sin and consequences, a, a record of deafened ears and unfeeling hearts, right? Now, it's not that everybody was unmoved, you know, by the, by the preaching and the prophecies of Isaiah, but, you know, there was a, a small remnant that, that God gathered to Isaiah that trusted in the Lord and, and recognized Isaiah as his prophet. But the general populace was very fickle, right? I mean, they would, they would respond in repentance one moment, and then the next moment they were back, you know, to, to their old idolatrous ways. And so you remember that the, the first 39 chapters kind of come to a climax where, Isaiah confronts Hezekiah, right, for his foolishness when he reveals all of the, all of the riches and all the power and all of the wealth of Judah to the Babylonian envoys, right? And, and he says to them, he, he tells them that, you know, there's coming a day when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed by those very, those, those very Babylonians that you've just revealed everything to, that there was going to be an exile of the Jews into Babylon. And you'll remember that Hezekiah's uncaring and his selfish response was what? Well, at least there'll be peace and security in my days. I won't have to worry about it. Right, that's for somebody else to deal with. So there's this Babylonian captivity that's looming when you get to the end of chapter 39, right? And when we get to chapter 40, there's a massive shift in the tone. It's because there's a change in the audience, right? It no longer is the audience the Judah of of Isaiah's day. But the audience now is the remnant that has been taken off into captivity in Babylon some 150 years in the future, right? And the message to them is one that is filled with comfort, And with divine intervention and blessing, with the promise of restoration and renewal and triumph and eternal joy, the message isn't for Isaiah's, you know, contemporaries. And it's not that that doesn't mean that they can't glean great truth from it as he's writing it or that their faith can't be buttressed by what they read of it. But this message is primarily written for the remnant that will find themselves in the Babylonian captivity in Judah's future. It's a message to those that are going to return and rebuild Jerusalem, that are going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the nation, right? You remember I told you, and and we know from history, that Judah's going to finally fall in 587 B.C. That's when Babylon is going to to enter. The Babylonians are going to enter Jerusalem. They're They're going to 
just destroy everything. They're going to raise the temple to the ground and the people are going to be taken away in exile. And this last vestige of the once mighty nation of Israel. I want you to think about this now. This is a significant thing. The, the last vestige of, quote, God's people, right? The mighty nation of Israel for a time, it seems, disappears from the earth. They're gone. They've been taken to another nation. And the promised land lies in ruins. And so God speaks through Isaiah to this future generation to encourage them to endure. Promising them that Yahweh hasn't forgotten them. That He's going to act to deliver them. That encouraging them to return to the promised land when they are freed from captivity. He even calls by name the very instrument that God would use to accomplish their release 170 years or so before he comes to the world stage. Calls him by name, right? Cyrus, the Persian. Judah is not going to remain in exile forever. In fact, they can't because the promise of the coming Messiah who will establish his eternal kingdom has to be fulfilled. God's word stands forever, right? And his plan to redeem his elect from every tribe and nation and tongue through the Messiah who will come from the tribe of Judah, demands that the nation of Israel be restored, right? So as we saw in Isaiah 40, the the, the very beginning, you know, Isaiah sets forth this overview of God's purpose, his plan to restore the nation and eventually bring in his eternal kingdom. He establishes, Isaiah does, the certainty of God's promise, this guarantee that cannot fail because of God's irresistible sovereign supremacy and divine might, right? The Lord alone can accomplish the salvation of His remnant, and He will. His singular glory, the overarching you know, majesty that He holds as Creator and Redeemer, it cannot fail, and it cannot be successfully resisted because He is the sovereign God. Right? So He sets all that out in Isaiah 40. And you remember in, in Isaiah 40, there was a hint of you know, God's contention with the, with the idols, proving that the idols were worthless, right? And so now it progresses in Isaiah 41 to this scene of a divine courtroom where God is both the judge and the prosecuting attorney in his case against the nations represented by Babylon and their idolatry. And in addition, he also serves as a counselor, you know, as a, I guess I would say guardian ad litem or whatever, to to the nation of Israel, to the remnant, to the true offspring of Abraham, to those who are his own by sovereign election and by personal faith and trust in the Lord. And what he does here is portray for us this essential contrast between the nations and peoples who do not know God and his true people. And it's very pointed and it's very powerful. So I want us to look at this. And the way we're going to look at it is just look at the, at the trial itself first. And then we'll look at the counsel that, that, that God gives to the remnant. So first let's look at the charges against the nation and their idols. Look at verse, verse 1 first. The Lord speaks and He says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now I want you to see this, because it's kind of a gripping scene. You're supposed to imagine like a divine courtroom here, okay? And the idea is this, is that God is calling all of the nations of the earth before Him. Remember, coastlands is a Hebrew idiom to indicate sort of the ends of the earth. 
And he's calling them before him so that they would give an account of themselves. Uh, to give an account, as we're going to see, of their rejection of God and their, their trust in um, their various man-made idols instead. And they're to, they're to uh, approach him, first of all, in silence, right? And the idea there is that they are to recognize, they are to, to put on the awe and the reverence that is rightly becoming of someone who appears before the Lord. That's the idea here, okay? That, that they are to be silent, they are, to, they are to give to God the reverence and the awe that He is due, and they are to just shut their mouths until He speaks. It's kind of like the thing you'd say to your kid, like, don't talk unless you're spoken to, right? And then only after God has spoken are they to renew their strength. That is, they're to stand before Him and act like men and answer the charges that God has brought. In fact, the idea here is that of like Job. You remember when God said to him, when the Lord said to him, when he, when he came to, you know, to, to, to confront Job and he said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's the idea here. So in this scene, the Lord is calling the nations to account for their idolatry, again, represented by Babylon, and their refusal to acknowledge his majesty and his sovereign rule, right? And God puts his majesty and his sovereign rule on display with two questions. One in verse 2 and the other in verse 4. Look at his question, first of all, in verse 2. Verses 2 and 3. He says, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now let me just stop there for a second and say this. The people who would have been reading this, okay, the guys that he's writing this to, the ones off in the future, Cyrus is well known to them. Cyrus is on the move. Cyrus the Persian has been stirred up, you know, from the east, and he is sweeping through the nations, okay? And he was a fear to the Babylonians. They were concerned about him, okay? They, because they realized, like, this is a military might we haven't seen before. And he's stronger than we are. And we need to be concerned about that. He goes on, God does to say, he gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and he passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. And that phrase, the description there, is he moves swiftly almost like he is flying. Think German blitzkrieg, right? Nothing is stopping him. question is, who is this guy? Who is, who is this one of whom the Lord is speaking? Well, he's speaking, like I said, of King Cyrus of Persia, who would come from the east, and then as verse 25 tells us, would actually invade Babylon from the north. Again, he would have been well known in those days. The days leading up to the end of the Babylonian Empire. Well known to the Jewish remnant that heard those words. Here comes another conqueror, right? What's going to happen to us? And he was feared for his rapid and wide-ranging conquest of the Middle East. All nations were trembling at his advance. In fact, let me just say a little something about Cyrus here, since this is, you know, since this is kind of getting, he's kind of getting introduced here. The rise of Cyrus, king of Anshan, was, was swift and impressive. In fact, it's probably not matched in history by any other king. He came to the throne... You know, in 559 B.C. And when he did, Persia at that time was subservient to the kingdom of, of Media, okay, the Medes. And by 549, he had become powerful enough, he had marshaled a great enough military to overthrow and kill the Median king, a guy named 
SDIGs. Not important, but that's just a cool name, right? SDIGs. And then and he founded the Persian Empire. From there, not content, in 547 BC, he moved west and he conquered King Croesus of Lydia and subdued all of Asia Minor, which is today present-day Turkey, right? Then from there, he turned back east to extend his rule some more into northwest India. And then finally, in 540, he had conquered most of the, the former Babylonian Empire and was threatening Babylon itself. Okay, so this guy is like just sweeping through all the nations, knocking them over like a, like a bowling ball, takes out pins, right? He'd won victory upon victory, and now for the people that, that are in view in this present passage, he's standing on the doorstep of Babylon. And the question that God is putting out there is this, what's the secret of his success? Who empowered this man's conquest? How did he rise from obscurity to threaten mighty Babylon, right? How'd that happen? But then he goes on. He asks the second question God does. He says, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. The Lord's asking in essence, you know, who has given the nations into Cyrus' hands? But moreover, who is the one who's ordered human history? Who is it that has established all the generations of mankind from the beginning? Who is it that has ordered everything that has taken place in human history? Who raises up and casts down? Who is it that rules over the events of humanity? Who is the sovereign Lord over it all? Who is that? And then he answers the question. He says, well, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. I'm the one. He alone is the sovereign God, right? He's the first and he's with the last. In fact, he's inescapable in his rule and his reign over the world of man. He was there at the beginning, he's there at the end, and he's there in between it all. In, in between all. He's there forever because he's the sovereign God. That's the idea. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's the I Am. The self-existent one. The one who has life in himself. The one who is the ruler of his creation and the judge of every man and woman. The one who can't be ignored. The one who holds all life in his hands. He's dependent upon no one, but all are dependent upon him. He answers to no one. Everybody answers to him. In other words, the secret of Cyrus' success was no secret at all. It wasn't by his own power and strength or wisdom that he conquered all those nations. He did it by the sovereign purpose of God. He was an instrument in the Lord's hands because God is the sovereign king over all creation and all humanity. He is Yahweh, the true and only God, and Cyrus is just his instrument. And he makes that fact extraordinarily clear. Think about the irony of this scene for just a moment, okay? God in this courtroom scene, again, it's a picture. It's not like it actually happened, right? But in this courtroom scene, the idea is, here is God like calling the nations, calling Babylon before him, much in the same way as he did with Judah when Assyria was outside the gate threatening them, right? And, 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 and the choice that was there for, for Judah was, well, we either continue in our idolatrous sin or we repent and God delivers us, right? And so he kind of lays out Here's the reality of who I am to the Babylonians who are steeped in idolatry. And what's their response going to be, right? Now, you would expect, maybe it would be humility at this point, right? Maybe it would be repentance or at least an acknowledgement of God's supremacy. The worship of the only God who is, right? But that's not their response at all. That is not how they respond at all. In fact, the response that they give here is really the response of fallen humanity 
in toto. I mean, I mean the, the, the response of Babylon is the response of fallen humanity, and it's all the same. Look at what happens here in verses 5 through 7. God says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. They are afraid, and they should be, right? God's demonstrating his mighty power. The Babylonian kingdom's about to collapse. They should be afraid. But rather than repent, it's this. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What's he describing here? What Isaiah is describing here is that rather than seeking God with a humble and a contrite heart, the response here of the nations is to take refuge in their imaginary collective strength and wisdom, right? Buck up, you know, buddy, we, we can handle this. We're, we're strong. We can, we can make it through this, right? Like walking, whistling, walking through a graveyard, right? They, 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 rather than fear leading them to repentance, it leads fallen man to, instead of that, like encourage one another in, in, in their foolishness and then turn to refurbish and prop up their idols, right? To elevate and redouble their allegiance to the works of their hands and the imaginations of their heart that cannot deliver them. In fact, it's almost comical, isn't it? Isn't it? They're faced with the Almighty God, and their response is, we got to make better idols. I mean, think about it. When they're confronted with the indisputable evidence of God and His glory, rather than acknowledging the one true God, they labor to give life to their idols. They think, thinking that those idols can deliver them. Get the insane irony here. They labor now, to give life to the works of their hands and their depraved minds so that those idols might turn and in return give them life. So I'm going to give you life so you can give me life. How does that work? It's utter foolishness, isn't it? Creating gods that are not gods, deluding themselves into thinking that they are when they're only statues of gold and silver and wood. And yet, isn't that what fallen humanity has always done and continues to do? when faced with the reality of God. Isn't that what we do? We may have progressed past idols of gold and silver and wood, but our idols are worthless just the same. Think about it. Fallen, God-rejecting mankind makes its impressive and intellectual idols of things like evolutionary theory, right? And naturalistic philosophy. That explains everything. Or, or human psychology and wisdom. Or social theory. Or academia and human reason, right? We always end up at some form of humanism. That man is a god and the captain of his fate, right? We've got all these various religions in our world and the like. And we turn to those, those in, impressive intellectual idols and we say, oh yeah, that explains everything, that's right, rather than having to come face to face with God. Or we just turn to some of the baser things that have always captivated human desire. right? Things like power and money and success and sex and comfort and nature. Whatever we think will sustain life. Whatever, whatever we think will help us to withstand the reality of God when He confronts us. But we're not God's. And our idols are not gods. And they do not shape the present or the future. And they can't give life and deliverance. And how hard it is for man to learn that. And every time that truth becomes just a little evident, like, man, this idol really can't give me what I'm looking for. As soon as it becomes even just the most evident, right? 
We make excuses for why that's so. And then we reshape our idols and we convince and we encourage ourselves that now we've got it right. This one will work. Anything to avoid the reality of God. And we strengthen it with nails, right? Like, like the Lord describes here, so that our new idol doesn't totter and crash to the earth and be proven to be impotent and inconsequential, right? Problem is, is that human idols are worthless and those who worship them become like them. Psalmist makes that clear in Psalm 115. When he says, starting in verse 2, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Speaking of the remnant. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The works of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Ears, um, eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. So here's God, right? He's bringing forth the charges. And rather than repenting and seeking God, the Babylonians are trying to seek refuge in themselves and in the gods of their own making, right? Like the rest of fallen mankind. And then jumping down to verse 21, we see God's verdict on them and on everybody who's like them. Look down there with me. Starting in verse 21. Right, God's a God of justice, right? He's not going to convict anybody without a trial. Here it is. God says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Speaking to the idols. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you, right? In this scene, God is, God is inviting the, the, the idols of the idolatrous nations, right, to, to, to bring, you know, to, to come before him, the king of Jacob, right, so he can examine them. And the idea is, you know, here it is. The, idols don't need, the, the idea is this, the idols, he challenges the idols to tell of the past, tell of the former things, explain the events and the epochs of, of human history, right? Or if you can't do that, tell the future. Prove that you're more than the inventions of men. If these idols in which the nations take refuge are really gods, if they really make a difference, if they actually have the power and the might to affect history and deliver men from the hand of Yahweh, well, if they're really gods, then prove it. Show us. In fact, in fact, I want you to see this. Like When he says there, you know, do good or do harm, the idea is you do anything, just do something. Yeah, are you alive? Like, don't just sit there, do something. We're waiting, right? Do something. Do anything. Whether it's good or harm, just do something to prove your divine power. Beloved, it's tragically humorous, isn't it? And the verdict's plain. Look, they're nothing at all. And their power's imaginary. And the one who chooses an idol over the God who, ha- who has revealed himself by his words and his actions and histories and history is an abomination in God's eyes. He's accursed. He's repugnant. He's revolting. 
So God's verdict is plain. Babylon's going to come to a sudden and complete end. As will everyone who trusts in idols. He says, starting in verse 25, look at it again. He's going back to Cyrus. He says, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he came from the east. Now he's coming in from the north. He was going to follow the river in. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it. None who proclaimed. None who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. God says, My servant Cyrus, he's going to make an end of Babylon as easily as a potter smashes a clay pot just like I predicted. In fact, Cyrus would call upon the Lord. And the meaning there is that he would make the name of the Lord known amongst the nations by fulfilling this prophetic declaration. None of the idols, none of the priests of Babylon, none of the magicians, none of the wise men predicted this. Their idols gave them no indication of what was coming. And and. None could deliver them. How could they? These gods are a delusion. They're the product of fallen and fanciful imaginations. Their works are nothing. They themselves are like empty wind. I mean, the obvious problem with idolatry, no matter what form it's in, beloved, here's the point. The obvious problem with idolatry is this, is that in the long run, it doesn't work. The obvious problem with idolatry is that it doesn't work. It only leads to disillusionment and destruction. Idols cannot speak. They cannot act. They cannot deliver. But on the contrary, the Lord says, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. I was the first one to tell Zion, hey, Cyrus is coming. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. He was the one who predicted it all. He was the one who told Isaiah in advance so that he would write these very words. Who gave Isaiah as a herald of good news to the remnant, the message that is written over 150 years in advance of these events. And the rise of Cyrus and his conquest of Babylon was going to mean bad news for the Babylonians, but it was going to mean good news for the Jewish remnant in captivity. Babylon would fall to Cyrus in 539 B.C. Get this. Without a single skirmish. Without a single arrow being shot. Babylon as a whole would just surrender to Cyrus. Nabonidus, who was the king, and his co-regent Belshazzar surrendered Babylon immediately. And it meant fear and subjugation for the Babylonians. But for The remnant, it was good news. Here's why. Cyrus, by the standards of the day, was a very enlightened and humane ruler. And he reversed the Babylonian policy of deportation and he quickly embarked on a program of repatriating displaced people and restoring their places of worship, sending them home and asking them only to make supplication and intercession for him. Just pray for me. And the captives from Jerusalem were among the first 
of the groups to benefit from it. In fact, Ezra records the decree of Cyrus saying this. Ezra chapter 1, verses 2-4. through four, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, get this now. We're going to talk about a guy who understands. The Lord, Yahweh. He uses the word Yahweh there. Yahweh, covenant name of God. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, okay, wherever he is in the kingdom, let him be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That's crazy, isn't it? But we know what? That the hearts of kings are like water in the hands of God, right? So the proof that God is the one true God and He's the sovereign Lord over human history is that He announces beforehand what He's going to do. He's going to free the remnant by the hand of Cyrus and then He brings it to pass. Something that no man-made idol could ever do, right? But here's the thing. The rise and the conquest of Cyrus, right? It wasn't an accident. It was the work of God. It was foretold by Isaiah. And again, for the Babylonians, that was bad news. But for the people of God, it meant liberation. But here's the deal. How would they know that? They wouldn't just assume that, right? I mean, they're slaves in Babylon, and so the assumption is, well, if somebody conquers Babylon, then what? We now become what? They're slaves, right? That's usually how it works. So they're not going to know that this is any, that anything is different here unless God tells them, right? And he does so in verses 8 through 20. Smack dab in the middle of this trial scene, we see God giving his counsel to his people. And I want you to look here at the Lord's promise and his consolation to his remnant. Because here's the thing, beloved. Not only are these words an encouragement to the remnant in ancient Babylon, right? But they are an encouragement to us as God's remnant in modern day Babylon. And everything that he says of them is true of us. They are an encouragement to us in a world that seems to be in constant upheaval, where the future seems to be uncertain, where the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and where the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right? That's the world we live in. The good news is that God's purpose cannot be successfully resisted. And we are not to fear but to trust wholeheartedly in Him alone. And so God makes a series of, of promises to His remnant here that make a clear distinction between us and the world. And they're beautiful and they are soul-strengthening. First of all, I want you to see this. The Lord says in verses 8 and 9, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. In essence, God is saying to the remnant, look, you are my people. You're my chosen possession and I'm not going to cast you off. You know, this remnant was collectively the servant of God, his possession, the possession of the Lord, just as Jacob had been, right? By God's sovereign choice. And just as Abraham had been before him, God's friend. And what he's getting at here is this. God is magnifying the encouragement and the security 
of the sovereign election of his people and the love and the trust and the friendship, okay, unequal one, but the friendship that should be the result, right? In fact, listen now, what, you know, the, God had called Israel to be his people, right? The nation. But more specifically, he's talking here about the true Israel, the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, right? The true offspring of Abraham. Those whom he had chosen for salvation and who had responded in faith and trust just as Abraham did. And he called them from the ends of the earth, hadn't he? Their father Abraham from Ur the Chaldees, and then Jacob back from the household of Laban to the promised land, and then the nation as a whole out of Egypt, and now the remnant from Babylon back to Jerusalem, just like he calls all of his elect from out of the nations of the world to himself and, as, and to an inheritance in heaven. In fact, the, the crazy thing is this. He traces their election back to who? Abraham, right? Our election is traced back even further to where? Before the foundation of the world. God can't cast off his people. He won't cast off his people because we've been chosen by him, by his grace, and according to his sovereign will and his purpose, according to his purpose of election. And it's meant here to be an encouragement to evoke steadfastness in their hearts, right? Some people have a wrong idea about this doctrine, right? That somehow they think election actually reduces the number of people who would otherwise be saved. That somehow in election, you know, God casts off people that are really willing and desiring to be saved. And so therefore, He reduces the number of people that otherwise would be redeemed. But can I tell you, that is the furthest thing from the truth. The scripture bears out clearly that it's God's act of sovereign election by which anyone is saved. And far from preventing someone from being saved, it actually guarantees the salvation of those who otherwise would continue in their natural rebellion and rejection of God, their natural state in which they're born. Election is not an austere or a harsh act by God. It's not arbitrary. It's an act of great, gracious, and divine love. Well, why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? You don't get to ask that question. And you can ask it, but God doesn't owe you an answer. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? God does what He desires. And then He gives this, you know, this act of gracious and, and divine love. He reminds Him, you belong to me. I've made you my own by grace. And it's given to, this, to the remnant as an encouragement. It's meant to encourage us. I am so glad my salvation is not dependent upon me. Amen. If it were, I'm gone. I'm lost. I can't hold myself to God. Then he says in verse 10, look, fear not for I am with you. I'm not with the Babylonians, but I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's saying to the remnant, look, you've got no need to fear the present nor the future. You've got no need to be distressed or distraught because God is with you. He's with us. 
And he promises to strengthen us in the midst of trials. He promises to help us in the face of challenges to our faith. He promises to uphold us in every circumstance by the power of his righteous right hand. He is the one who upholds us, not we ourselves. By his might and his power that he puts forth for our security and our endurance to the end, he pledges himself to us, his remnant, as our God. I am your God, right? Moreover, he promises your enemies will be no more. I love this. Look at it. He's going to conquer them all. He says in verses 11 through 13, look at it. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you. You're going to go look for them, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing. At all, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Now the picture here is cool. I'll get to it in a second. Here's the promise, great promise. Every enemy that raises its head against the people of God, every enemy that contends with God's people because they are God's people, not because we're jerks, right? I mean, that's right. All those who hate and strive against God's remnant and contend in war against us because of him, all of them will be brought to nothing, period. Full stop. All, they will perish. They will be overcome by God so that they will not even be able to be found. There will be no trace of them. That was certainly true of Babylon, right? Babylon disappears. Ancient Babylon, anyway, until the resurrection of the modern-day Babylon, right? But Babylon disappears, and it will be so of all the enemies of the church on the Day of Judgment. They're gone. It's because God is a warrior for his people. In fact, this is what I want to show you because this is super cool. All right, so I want you to envision this now. He says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. And the idea is I am the one who fights for you. So I want you to picture this. Here's the picture, right? Again, it's anthropomorphic. God doesn't have a body, right? But the picture is this, right? Imagine a warrior that's in battle. Most warriors hold their hand where? Or hold their sword where? The right hand, right? And if I'm going to hold hand with somebody's if I'm going to hold somebody's right hand, what hand do I need to use? My left one. And so the picture that's being drawn here is of a faithful warrior father swinging a sword with one hand while holding the hand of his child with the other. Cutting a swath through the enemies. And then he promises that though the remnant's weak and insignificant in the eyes of the world, in him we're strong. Look at verses 14 through 16. Again, this is a picture. He says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Now to the world, right, the remnant is like a worm. We don't give much consideration to worms, do we? I mean, not really. We, we, you know, they're insignificant, they're powerless, they're seemingly helpless. We don't really 
take much notice of worms. We use them to fish, you know, like, right? But, but in the eyes of God, the remnant is something else altogether. It's not a worm. It's strong. It's like a threshing sledge, right? God's the farmer. We're the threshing sledge. And God uses His remnant to separate the wheat from the chaff. God uses His remnant to go forth in the power of the living God, in preaching the gospel, really, divide the wheat from the chaff, right? The idea is there's no mountain, no obstacle that's going to stand in the way of God's redemption of His people or in His judgment of His enemies. Nothing's going to stop the work of God in and through His people until the fullness of His people are brought in and the enemies of God are judged. And the result will be what? Worship and glorying in the Lord, rejoicing in His great power and His great purpose and in all that He has done. Right? And then in symbolic and picturesque terms, the Lord says in verses 17 through 20 this. He promises his provision and his security. He says, When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights. Okay, so now imagine that. He's going to open up rivers on mountains. Okay? And fountains in the midst of the valleys. And I will make the wilderness, right? The sand, the, de- the desert, a pool of water. And the dry land, springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Here's the picture. The sojourner, sojourner in the wilderness needs two things. Primarily, he needs water and shelter, right? And we're sojourners. And just like the exiles in Babylon for whom God's going to provide in the wilderness journey back to Jerusalem, the water and the shelter they need, so God will provide for us as exiles in a foreign land, making our way to heavenly Jerusalem. He, we will have the water that we need, the water of His Word, the living water of His Spirit welling up within us. We will have shelter from the storm in the, in, in the Lord Himself. As we make our way to enjoy the beauty of the Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, the eternal Jerusalem, right? The eternal city. And because of His faithfulness, we will see and we will consider and we will understand together that the hand of the Lord has accomplished our redemption and we will glory in Him. And His faithfulness and His sovereign power to redeem will be a witness to us and to the world that has rejected and refused Him to their utter destruction. So you see this courtroom scene, right? <laughs> it's pretty cool. And smack dab in the middle of it, we see this encouragement to the people, to God's people. And the central theme of this whole chapter really comes down to this. God's not like the worthless idols of man. He's not powerless. He's not empty wind. He's not nothing as they are. He's the first and the last. He's the Lord your God. He's the Redeemer. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is the Sovereign Lord who commands human history. He's the God who declares beforehand and brings His words to pass. He's invincible in His purpose and He's irresistible in His might. And all nations and peoples must answer to Him. 
and for us as the remnant. Faith in him is not delusion. It's deliverance, right? He's our perfect refuge. He's our faithful redeemer and sustainer, and he will not forsake his own. And so we can say, we can confess with the psalmist, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Man, I am so glad that we have a God who is real and not the imagination of men. Let's pray together. John. Father God, I thank you for the relevancy of your word. God, for the fact that 2,500 years later, Lord, we are still being impacted by the words that you've spoken. Lord, they're still powerful. Lord, your word doesn't take a break. It doesn't take a sabbatical. It doesn't take a vacation. Vacation, but your word is always effective and it accomplishes what you long for it to accomplish. So, God, I just thank you for preserving it, for giving it to us. God, I thank you for giving us a pastor who can faithfully exposit the word of God. Lord, this picture that we saw tonight could not be more relevant. Lord, there is a very real judgment that's going to happen. Eventually, the world will stand before you, and we will be in in, in the world will be totally defenseless, totally defenseless. There's not one thing that they can cast up or throw up in front of themselves to shield them from your wrath or to satisfy you or to please you. Uh, There's nothing. But I do thank you for the fact that your people can stand before you in confidence, knowing that the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, is cleansed up from all iniquity, all sin, all unrighteousness, Lord, and that you have placed upon us the righteousness of Christ. Lord, his death counted for us once and for all. Lord, and I do thank you for your electing love. Without it, none of us would be here. Without it, none of us would know who you are. None of us would even know that we're sinners. Lord, we would have no clue but you saw fit and you were well pleased to choose us, your people, and to make us a new creation, Lord, so that we might bring you glory. So, Lord, I pray, my, my prayer echoes Mark's. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you with everything that we've got. Lord, I pray that we would be servants after your own heart. Lord, that we would be faithful in proclaiming the gospel that does not belong to us, but belongs to Christ. Lord, the gospel that you've implanted in our hearts, I pray that we would be faithful proclaiming it, not only outwardly, but inwardly to ourselves. Yeah. God, that we would look at the gospel for what it is, as what it is, view it in the way that we should. It's our life source. It is our lifeline. Without it, we have absolutely nothing. It's not a crutch. 
It is a life source. And without it, all, all people are dead. Hmm. So God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your warnings. And I thank you for your salvation, your comfort that, you give, that you've given to your people. Lord, for all the things that you've given us. The church, the word of God, prayer, real communion with you, Lord. It's just mind-blowing. And I pray that it would stir us up and drive us towards things that are holy, towards yeah. things that are righteous. So I thank you for this time. I pray that as we meet in prayer, that you would bend your ear to us, Lord, that we would humble ourselves. And, Lord, that our prayers would be in alignment with your will. Lord, that you would align our hearts with you, and we would be one with you fully. So, Lord, I thank you for this time again, and I pray that it would have a continual effect continuing effect on us, Lord, and that we would be sanctified by what we heard. So, Lord, I thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.